Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the editor-in-chief here at Modern Retail. This week, we have Adriana Kerrig. She's the founder and CEO of Little Words Project, which is a really, really impressive, successful uh, company that makes, among other things, beaded word bracelets. Um, It's been around for over a decade. Uh, They've really been expanding over the last few years. They have many stores open. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the last stat I had is that you guys have a $20 million revenue run rate, which is extremely impressive. I believe that was from last year. So if you have any updated stats, feel free to share them. I just want to talk about the expansion because Little Words Project began as predominantly direct to consumer. Over the last few years, I believe starting with the pandemic, you guys saw real huge growth and you've been doing a number of different really fascinating things that have been really growing the business. And I want to talk all about it. But Adriana, how are you doing? Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate that incredible intro. You're pretty accurate on everything you've said. Uh, And yeah, the brand started in my parents' basement back in 2013. Um, And over the past 10 years, I have been slowly but surely building it um, with an incredible team of people to the point where it is today, which is, you know, we now have 12 retail stores and pretty sizable wholesale business with partners like Target and Nordstrom and a really great D2C.com business as well. So we're really proud of the growth and where we've gotten to. Yeah, it's super impressive. And I was, you know, I always try to do a little bit of LinkedIn stalking before I uh, talk with someone on the on the show. And you're a really unique one because, correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong, but this is this is what you've done fresh out of college, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> we're, we're currently at my first job. No, I, I did have <laughs> I did have one other job, uh, a few. I mean, I worked in retail myself actually, which kind of is funny. It made me a true retail junkie. I'm like, I love the art of like retail sales and the experience of retail. I worked at Ralph Lauren, which made me really um, kind of intentional about the customer experience. And it's definitely what has informed a lot of how we have built the retail experience for Little Words Project. Um, But after that, I worked for a brief stint in PR and in marketing at a boutique marketing firm. And I was doing that while I was simultaneously coming home at 7 p.m. to work on this business, Um, where I would come home, I would... I was commuting into the city from Jersey. I would come home and then from seven o'clock to 2 a.m. I was beating these friendship bracelets and my father was my original shipping department and he was shipping them out for me. We were big night owl families, <laughs> did everything at night. And um, after about a year of doing both, I was able to leave that full-time job and you know completely jump ship into this business full-time, which was about in 2014. So for a literal decade, I have been doing nothing but this and I started it at just 23. Wow, that's... That's amazing. There are very few stories like that. While I was doing the research for this, it reminded me of this age-old question that I've always had, and I want, uh, which we'll get to probably later when we talk about the retail stores, but I have this memory growing up, which where I grew up in a very small town, um, and there was a bead store in that town, and all it sold was beads. And my question was always, how do they stay in business? And I feel like you would have the answer for this. But I guess I'll start with my first question, which sort of lends itself to this, which is, what what was your vision in 2013? Did you think this? W- did you know it would be only direct consumer for the first two year for the first few years, and then go into retail? Did you have an overall grand vision, or was it just this is what you wanted to do, and it evolved over time? The latter, I will say. You know, as a 23 year old fresh out of college, I I I didn't have a ton of understanding of what I was starting. Right, like I couldn't really 
look at it with this plan of like, I'm going to start D to C and then I'm going to go wholesale (laughs) and then I'm going to, you know, that would, I I wish I had that kind of foresight. I probably would have done things a little bit differently if I had, but you know, I will say I, I, I let the business and the community that we were building inform our next move pretty much every time. You know, I started this because I had wanted to create a kinder, more connected world. I had grown up being bullied from a very young age. And the whole purpose of the product was not to create, you know, this like bead empire or this bracelet (laughs) empire. It was really more so to bring kindness to the world through this little vehicle right on our wrists, right? So the whole concept is to wear your word for as long as you need it and then pass it on one day to someone who needs it more. And each individual tag on the bracelet has a code. It's a unique code, making each bracelet essentially a one of one. And that code is used to connect the bracelet to our website, share your story, why you chose it, how it's helped you. And then when the next person does the same as you continue to pass them on, you can start to see where the bracelet travels and how it affects people down the line. So it's that little X factor that really makes it more than just a friendship bracelet, right? It makes it truly a vehicle of kindness and connection and community. And um, that's what I set out to build, right? So over time, I kind of just, you know, I, I failed forward, right? And figured it out as I went. And, um, you know, the decision to go D to C first or to go with just the website first was really more so about the understanding that it needed to have a brand. It couldn't just be that I was making these bracelets and selling them on Etsy. I couldn't just be going to street fairs. I needed to have a story around this product because of its simplicity and how maybe easy it was for anyone to make. I had to really prove the X factor. And I that I knew from an early, an early position. And I think that was because of my marketing background um, and my understanding of sales, right? And why people decide to buy something, right? So yeah, I, I definitely, I'm not foreign to the question of, I'm sorry, you did what? You, you've sold how many of these bracelets? <laughs> you know, you have a brand around this product and this product alone. And yet it's been our superpower because we've, it's allowed us to kind of build and grow a little bit under the radar. Well, I think to my original question, what I've realized over time is that they're like, the store that I'm thinking about had a huge community to it. And I feel like what you tapped into and what you're talking about is that it's it's very community building. But I have a feeling, and I was doing some reading uh, earlier about, you know, how it grew, but social media played a big role in that. Like you you were, you you had an Instagram presence, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Instagram had just essentially started when Little Words Project had started. It was very new and influencers weren't a thing yet. People were not really sure how the platform was going to show up, but... I very early on started leveraging it as a tool to show the behind the scenes, to show what I was doing, how I was doing it, what I was figuring out as I was figuring it out. And I think it really helped lay the foundation for how we would continue to show up with the business over time as authentic and transparent and really just kind of bringing our community on along for the ride. It it definitely was the foundation for what the community ultimately became, which was kind of this group of friends, right? That just want to support one another, help one another when they're down. It's it's kind of the reason that we did have such a successful COVID year. Um, you know, beyond the fact that the product really helps lift people up during times of need and struggle. But I also was very transparent then, right? I, I did a story where I was like, guys, we need your help. We 
I don't want to furlough. I don't want to lay anyone off. We need to keep building. You know, if you have dollars to spend, please spend them with us. And it it worked. And our customers showed up for us in droves. But even before COVID, I feel like community has become a very important word in the DTC and the retail mm-hmm. world. But like in 2013, it wasn't used in, in the same way. So when right. did you come to realize and how did you leverage it where you it had to be such a core part of the business and the storytelling? It was a core part from the very start. It was the reason that I wanted to create this brand, right? As a young girl going through so much bullying and always feeling ex- like excluded and like I didn't belong somewhere, I actively, selfishly was trying to create something for me to belong to, right? In a way, right? And I think, you know, I had come up with the idea while I was in a sorority in college, which is, you know, known for community and sisterhood. And we had been making them for ourselves in that sorority, in that group of 60 women and sharing them amongst ourselves, right? At chapter meetings and help the, the bracelets really started to become this symbol of sisterhood. And when I graduated, saw they were still doing it, I thought to myself, why couldn't this be a sisterhood for the masses, right? So community was at the core of why this product came to exist from the very, very start. And yeah, over time, people have definitely started shifting towards, okay, we need to give these customers a purpose for why they're shopping with us. We just very much so from the very start, that was always our purpose. And our customers always shopped us for that reason. As it grew, as it became more systematized, as you your sales doubled, etc. And like also as as you increase your sales channels, you know, you're in major stores like Target, how were you able to maintain that sort of one-to-one community aspect? Because that that becomes hard when you're in big box retail. Yeah, no, it's definitely been harder the more we've grown. And, you know, even just as far as how um, present I have personally been as a part of the story, um, I've gone in and out over the last decade of like, okay, am I the forefront of it or am I behind the scenes? Do I talk as it's my brand or do I want, you know, to have like the hit by the bus theory and make sure it functions without me? Like, how do we keep that going? And um, I think we're kind of coming back on a wave of, I I do want to be at the forefront. I definitely am someone who, you know, I have so much that I believe in that I think has gotten us to this point. And, you know, I I have that platform that I want to, you know, jump off from um, and bring my community along along with me on. But, you know, when it comes to the, the big box story and how we keep that community build, it's really just about like making decisions with the concept of the community first being at the forefront of those decisions. So even when it came to Target, I was adamant that we could not go at a cheaper price point. And that's not something that's normal for Target, right? We weren't making a sub-brand. We were making we were taking our brand identity and putting it in Target. This was in an effort to maintain all of our independent retailer relationships that we had built tirelessly over the last decade. We did not want to offend or upset them. We did not want to affect our D2C business. We really wanted to be intentional with that decision. Further, I was adamant about having real marketing presence. Like I wanted them to put my name. I wanted them to put the brand storytelling, the mission behind it. I wanted a splash page on the website. And I know it's kind of like, okay, well, yeah, everyone wants that. So what made you get it? I think we had a really, Target has been an incredible partner. We had an incredible buyer who got what we were trying to build. And like most brands, Target's goal is to increase community building and work with real authentic brands. And I'm very blessed and lucky and grateful to say that that's what Little Words Project is. And we just stayed really resolute in um, that 
reality and just did not veer no matter what opportunity came knocking. If it didn't fit within the core goal of creating and building community and it took away from it in any way, shape or form, we've turned it down. Was it, is it daunting to give such strict parameters to such a major retail player? Like, I imagine you said everybody wants to say, we can't lower our price for Target, but then you're like, I'm also talking to Target. So how, like, talk about that. Yeah. You know, I think it has to do with the fact that we've been bootstrapped, right? So we bootstrapped uh, the brand to $20 million, which was um, in 2023, we took our first investment, which was early 2023. Um that storytelling is was really just it really informed a lot of how we built and therefore a lot of what we did or didn't need right so target's been a huge player in our brand building and it's now become a, a major piece of the brand so that's you know that i will establish up front but i always had this kind of delusional confidence i guess if you will to not worry that if they said no then okay there would be another opportunity that came knocking that would work and I think that's because we had done it. Like I already could look back and see the proof of when we stay true to what we believe and we don't veer for any one thing or another and we just stick to the concept of the core mission and serving that core customer, it always pays off in the end, right? And so I've been able to look back at that decade and I'm not as much of like those there are those brands that kind of shoot out of a cannon and they go and they get that funding early and then they get these opportunities and then they just kind of side shift and they they become the brand that the the big box wants them to be rather than saying, no, this is the brand that you want and need. And I think because we had such a long tail of building the brand, it enabled us to come from that position and it gave us a, lot, a little bit more clout to the targets of the world, right? So you know, but no, yeah, it was definitely scary. Like I, <laughs> I, 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 I second guess myself all the time. And I will tell you also, there was a, a, a moment when we were talking and seeking um, the target relationship that we had like in our hand, we had the kids buyer very interested and the kids buyer was ready to put us in the stores. And our rep at the time, or still our rep now that we work with was like, you know, it's really hard to get the adult jewelry buyer. We might want to take this as like a foot in. And then and I was adamant because this is not a kid's brand. I didn't want it to become a kid's brand, knowing full well that Target would have turned it into a kid's brand, right? If we got such large distribution, it would have maybe cannibalized the business a little bit. And so I think that was a scary decision to be like, I have Target literally ready to buy and that's dollars, right? But I'm going to say no because it doesn't serve the core customer. And ultimately, I, I the target adult buyer came, came, you know, opened the door a few, I want to say, you know, four to six months later. And it's, you know, the rest is history. So yeah, I mean, I think I do, I'm, I'm always daunted, but I try to do things um, anyway, <laughs> with yeah. feeling that way. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's like, I mean, the fact that you did say no, and then it came back just sort of proves ultimately the point that, that you there, the thesis that you have, I guess. But going back to the bootstrap thing, because I think that's really important and interesting and something that not a lot of brands can say that they can do to $20 million. But that also gives you the ability to choose when and how you expand. So how, when did you realize it was time for you to begin doing wholesale? So actually, um, the wholesale story really started in 2015, 2016. So about three years in. Um, and it came like most of this business has come just out of a product of 
connecting with others, you know, having honest and open conversations about what I understood and what I didn't understand and being very willing to ask the questions, right? So I had actually, um, I had heard from a rep, a wholesale rep in the industry around 2000, like I said, 2015, who had said something to me along the lines of, you know, I really want to rep your brand. I only have a couple of other jewelry brands that I, that I rep and would love to rep you. And I'm like, what does rep mean? (laughs) What, what are you talking about? What is, I don't even have any, I'm like, what is like, what is wholesaling? I just thought, okay, I go into these stores and ask them to carry the line and whatever. But I wasn't doing that because I had one bad experience in 2013 where they were like, my customers will never wear this. Meanwhile, they're one of our accounts now, LOL. Um, (laughs) But I walked into that store and I was like, ooh, I don't want to do that ever again. So I'm going to just not do this for the next two years. I'm going to figure out the D2C play on, online and, and not worry about wholesale. Um, so anyway, long story short, that, that, that woman opened the door. Her name was Eileen. Um, she taught me what a line sheet was. She taught me what a trade show was. Um, and then through another connection of another female-founded uh, business um, called Headbands of Hope, actually, who's still around they um, reached out to me about they were going to be doing a trade show and did I want to split a booth with them? And I was like, okay, sure. So now I'm like, all right, I have to figure out displays. I have to figure out how to get there. I have to figure out like what my booth is going to look like. What is a booth? And so it was a lot of just like, again, trial and error, figuring it out, doing things like at the bare minimum just to get there and show up and let the product speak for itself after that. And it was really, truly, you know, a snowball effect um, from there. And I think that this whole business from now to even from then to even now where we talk about where we are at in our retail expansion and our plans there it's very build the plane as we fly and it's it's that that I do think is a product of bootstrapping right we've never had the luxury of saying okay we've got millions of dollars yeah so what what expert team can we hire what expert research can we do what you know expert branding can we have like we have probably rebranded this brand every year since 2013, right? Because it's just a constant, like, chipping away at it. And, um, yeah, I think it's been our superpower in a way, too. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So you, you mentioned, or you sort of hinted at this a few, a few seconds ago, but talk about the the retail play, because you, you opened a store, your flagship is in New York City, right? Yes, and so when did you when did you decide you needed to do that? And you now have 12, as you said. How mm-hmm. what made you decide to to ramp it up that quickly? Yeah. So um we opened our first store in November of 2021 at, in Bleecker, um uh, in the West Village at, on Bleecker Street in Manhattan. And it was lightning in a bottle. It was like immediately, I mean, it did a million in the, its first year. It was like an immediate you know, four wall profitable experience. And it was amazing to see the customer show up live in person, right? We never had this in-person experience for these customers. And yet we were founded on community, right? And community makes you think, you know, coming together, doing something together in person. And that's where the brand really took off was once it had that in-person experience of the retail store. So once we did the the Bleecker Street experience, we were like, wow, this could, this could probably show up in tons of different markets. While re- while Bleecker is in our backyard, being a Jersey, you know, New York-based brand, we wanted to test new markets and, and try new cities. So in 2022, we did um, uh, five more locations kind of in different markets. We did most, mostly street retail, really just trying to figure out where the, where the, the product would sing the most. And 
what we learned is that where we set up stores, we have the tendency to um, see larger uh, selling at online in those markets, right? So we we it became a really a decent customer acquisition play, but not huge, believe it or not, just decent. And that enabled us to um, continue just testing these new markets. Luckily, it's not like a super, it, it hasn't been super expensive for us to launch into retail because our product has been kind of an easier access point. It's not like crazy apparel numbers of inventory, right? Like it's it's like a lower price point product. Now, it's been harder at the AOV level, right? And, you know, making sure that we're seeing the revenue numbers because our product is $25 retail. So that was always a stopgap for me. Like how could we ever do retail with such a low price point product? It was my husband who came in. Um, he joined in 2021 as our COO and president from a career in, in at Blackstone um, in private equity. And He's the one who was like, let's try retail. And it was his first and probably best hot take for the brand. Um, and now, you know, here we are two, three, almost three years, no, two and a half years later, not even. Um, and, you know, we're on our 12th store. It's definitely been a sprint over 2023 was a bigger sprint for us. Um, and now we're trying new new options like, uh, you know, malls and uh, lifestyle centers and trying to see which one is the perfect fit. Again, the build the plane as you fly mentality, really just establishing that foundation of really understanding what works for us and our customer and our, our community. Um, but ultimately what we've learned above all else is that people want to come in and do something. And it's kind of recalls back to that bead store where you go in and you make something. That's what the customer's number one desire is when they walk into our doors is to be able to sit down at one of our beading bars and make themselves a bracelet. Um, and that's what we found to be the, the kind of winning, the winning, the secret sauce, if you will. You said earlier that you were testing out new markets, seeing what worked and what didn't. How did you decide which markets to enter? Was it just based on general intuition? Did you do market data? I always feel like usually it's where people see maybe a mode of sales or where sales could be. But how, how did you tally those numbers? It was kind of a little bit of both. Um, in th on the one hand, you know, we opened in kind of like these flagpole cities. So we opened in Boston, we opened in Miami, we opened in uh, San Francisco, in Georgetown. Like we we opened a second store in New York. We really wanted to have these like brand flag planting opportunities, right? So it was more of a, a means of customer acquisition and you know top of the funnel brand awareness that we knew we could back up with the experience when we asked the customer to come in store. Like we knew we could be profitable. We just had to kind of start somewhere. So we started with that energy of like planting flags. And then over time, once we started to see, okay, these lifestyle centers are working better than these, you know, uh, other street retails. This amount of foot traffic in this area is the sweet spot. This is what we have to do in stores that are a smaller footprint. Uh, you know, we really started to learn and, and kind of lean into what's working and, and iterate on what we established at the at the forefront. Um, now we can be a little bit more opportunistic about our retail expansion. Um, we're really we're a little pickier about where we select to be, um, but we've kind of we're starting to really figure out that perfect formula, um, and it's really been able to uh, make a difference. Got it. Got it. I want to 
ask something that's a little bit different, but it's I've really been wanting to ask you this, which is, you know, you saw the COVID bump. You've been seeing this growth year over year. But have you seen a, a Taylor Swift bump given <laughs> the friendship bracelet thing? Yeah, no, I, I, I would have been surprised if you didn't ask me this. Um, <laughs> You know, yes and no. I will say that the overall category of the friendship bracelet has definitely seen a lift thanks to Taylor because of just everyone and literally everyone and their mother making these bracelets because she said to do so in one of her songs. I mean, it's like <laughs> the woman has power. It's incredible. Um, and I'll also say that, you know, we've certainly leaned into it on our end. We created a collection that is the exact collection that Lance Bass actually gifted to Taylor Swift on the VMA stage was he gifted her our product. Like wow. we created it for him, got it to him the day before. And she he gave it to her on the stage of the VMAs. And so when that happened, we leaned into it immediately. We jumped on the viral, uh, you know, social media play. And we popped those very bracelets up on our website that we knew Taylor now owned. And we saw, you know, customers came out in droves to buy that collection. Her fans bought that collection. And we definitely saw a little lift around that. But what's funny is, you know, we look back at that, um, those numbers, and we've actually had to do it recently for our investors and had, had internal conversations about the overall Taylor effect. And while she's been an incredible brand adjacent uh, female that we're like so proud to be associated with in some way, we only saw, we saw a less than 1% sales lift huh. from that collection, which is immaterial when you think about yeah. the overall brand presence. And I think it just goes to show that, you know, the brand has had its own legs before Taylor. And while the rest of the world who jumped on Taylor adjacent things that maybe didn't make sense to their regular product assortment, right? They might have seen a more significant lift because they really did grift, whereas we've just kind of, <laughs> sorry to say, <laughs> whereas whereas we've just, like, I almost want to say, like, we kind of paved the path to begin with on the friendship bracelet, and Taylor kind of slotted right in when it mattered and, you know, has been, like, kind of shifted off, and it's not really made a huge impact financially. Though, what I will say it has helped is in opening some media relationships yeah. because everyone wanted to talk about Taylor. So now it's like, okay, let's talk about the brand that, you know, Lance Bass gave to Taylor. And we saw a lot of organic lift there. So that I will say has been helpful. Um, and I'm sure there's been some residual lift from the media that we don't really calculate because it's not a Taylor-specific product. Yeah. Well, it, there's this thing I've been talking a lot with with the team at Modern Retail, and it's I, I'm just fascinated with it. But And I call it, and this is a very unscientific term, but it's like proximity marketing. And it's, I feel like we saw this with Barbie. We've seen this with Taylor Swift. And we see this with these other major media things where companies will launch products that are similar or talking about, but trying to jump on that. And I think it's really interesting that it makes sense that, you know, you you rode that wave and you saw a list lift in organic, but because you have such a core base, it was sort of immaterial at the time. But do you think that that, like, do you think that 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 is a solid marketing choice for some brands, or do they have to be your quote unquote the grifters, as you say? I look, I mean, look, I don't think there's anything wrong with grifting, if I'm being <laughs> honest. Like, do you? I'm a I'm a little bit of a capitalist there. Like, you wanna, you know, if you see an opportunity, like it, everything is about marketing. It's about how we sell something, it's about how we package it and deliver it to the consumer. So if someone sees an opportunity that fits perfectly in line with what, you know, the 
the overall story is, then to me, that's just good marketing, right? And we definitely had some version of that too. And we've had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of customer reaction to like, how is this allowed that you can just like use Taylor Swift's likeness or whatever? And at the end of the day, it's like, well, we're selling the product that we know we gave her. And so we're just telling you about it. We're just sharing the story. So do I think it's important for people to, you know, do what they feel is, is, going to help advance the plot of their business? Sure. Do I think that it's best to be as organic about it as possible? Yes, right? Like if you're, you know, a frying pan company and you're going to start making friendship bracelets because it feels brand adjacent, you know, because it feels like it's tailor adjacent and she's the moment, then maybe no. But if you're an apparel company and you can print something on a sweatshirt and turn it around for the customer and you're not producing like an exorbitant amount of waste in doing so, then... Yeah, by all means. So, you know, I think we were very lucky again to, it's almost like we built the foundation and then the, you know, for the the iron to strike, right? Like we got the iron hot and then we were able to strike at the same time. And so I feel very good about how we've done it. Um, but, you know, if we were to start making a completely new product category just to be, like if we were to start making, you know, NFL jackets, right? Yeah. A la the, the brand that has, yeah. catapulted since, that's a very different story. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely nuanced, but we 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 took advantage where we could and and I do feel I feel like we did it we did it as as kosherly as possible. Absolutely. Well, we're almost running out of time and I have a million more questions to ask you. So I'll so first I just want to get in quickly because I think I want to know and people might want to know, but what made you decide to ultimately take on venture capital? We actually had, it's so funny, in the beginning, I never, I never reached out looking for venture capital because I was, I was very daunted by it. I was really like, I couldn't wrap my head around, you know, walking into a boardroom and a a group of people around a table being like, you want me to give you money for friendship bracelets, right? Like I couldn't get out of my own head with that. So fast forward, you know, 10 years, we started fielding reverse inquiries, which was incredible and not something I ever would have expected. We talked to a bunch of different PE firms, venture capital firms, and ultimately landed with um, a private family office. And that came, it's actually the owners of WS Development, who is one of our retail um, uh, landlords. And so um, he's been super helpful in just the retail expansion story. And he's really like, he's obsessed with stores and retail and has, you know, asked us the hard questions and Ultimately, we felt like it was just going to be a good partner for this next phase of growth. And um, so far, so good. Got it. Got it. All right. And so let's talk about the year to come. We talked about the last two years where you've opened stores at a, an insane rip. So it sounds like the the cadence might be slowing down a little bit. Fewer stores, but more stores? You know, yes and no. We're, we're, we've got a few more stores in the hopper, looking at probably another five this year. So similar cadence cadence, um, but more intentional, opportunistic uh, uh, locations, right? Like really trying to not just say, okay, let's kind of cast a wide net. Now it's like we know where we want to fall. And so the stores we open will be a little bit more of the perfect formula that we've deduced through the last 
you know, through opening the last 12, if that makes sense. Um, but we do, you know, look, I, I see a world where we can have 100 retail stores, 100 Little Words Project stores across various different types of centers, be it lifestyle, street retail, mall, so long as we get the, the square footage right in each of those locations, the, um, you know, the staffing right and the experiential piece right, then we can kind of set up in any of these spaces um, according to each location's formula, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And just a few follow-ups. So do, how important is it that every store be four walls profitable? Extre- as important as it is to anyone, right? Like extremely. <laughs> I mean, it's extremely important. I think that in the first the first uh, rip of it of, you know, one to 10, not as important because we really were trying to learn and understand. And we did a mix of pop-ups within those first 10. And some of them we actually will close and say, okay, we had a great year. We learned this isn't the right fit and that's okay. And we market them as pop-ups. So no one's like, oh, that brand failed. It's more so like, oh, the pop-up's done. And that's been helpful. Um, so, you know, to that end, uh, not as not as important now, definitely much more important. You know, we really, especially if we're talking a hundred stores, four wall profitability is like at the top of our list of things we wanna wanna reach for. And again, so far so good. Got it. And anything else we should expect to hear from you in the next year other than the the new stores? Any other announcements in the I mean, we've got some incredible collaborations coming, some incredible retail uh, wholesale partners coming. Um, you know, I think some of the the most magical places on earth, if you will, that can um, take this product and bring to life their um, their community. I think what I really want to see for this brand and for this product itself is to be a community catalyst for anyone, any brand that's seeking that kind of community growth we can kind of slot in and do that for you. And we can become a symbol of your community building while still maintaining the core tenant of who we are, which is a brand about connection and kindness and community, right? So we're very excited for all the things that are going to roll out this year, the incredible collaborations, um, the awesome uh, retail uh, placement and um uh, wholesale placement as well. So there's a lot of good things coming. And if you see a Little Words Project store in a city near you, you know, make sure you go in and sit down at the beating table and um, connect with other like-minded people who are doing the same. Absolutely. Well, Adriana, this has been a really great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.